Our scripture readings this morning, Old Testament is from Exodus chapter 12 as we look at the institution of the Lord's Supper, or the, of, excuse me, Passover. And then in the New Testament, we're going to look at, a, read Mark 14, 12 through 31, and we'll be looking at the institution of the Lord's Supper. So we'll see how these kind of go together in our scripture reading, and then we will uh, look further at Mark 14 in our sermon. So let's hear the Word of God, Exodus chapter 12, beginning at verse 1. Now the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, saying, This month shall be your beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year to you. Speak to all the congregation of Israel, saying, On the tenth of this month, every man shall take for himself a lamb, according to the house of his father, a lamb for a household. And if the household is too small for the lamb, let him and his neighbor next to his house take it according to the number of persons. According to each man's need, you shall make your account for the lamb. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male of the first year. Now take it from the sheep or from the goats. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats. Now you shall keep it until the fourteenth day of the same month. Then the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill it at twilight. And they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and on the lintel of the houses where they eat eat it. Then they shall eat the flesh on that night roasted in fire with unleavened bread and with bitter herbs they shall eat it. Do not eat it raw nor boiled at all with water, but roasted in fire, its head with its legs and its entrails. And you shall let none of it remain until morning, and what remains of it until morning you shall burn with fire. And thus you shall eat it with a belt on your waist, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand. So you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover." For I will pass through the land of Egypt on that night and will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and against all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgment. I am the Lord. Now the blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are, and when I see the blood, I will pass over you, and the plague shall not be on you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. And now from Mark chapter 14. Beginning at verse 12, though our text will actually not start till verse 22. Now, on the first day of the unleavened bread, first day of unleavened bread, when they killed the Passover lamb, his disciples said to him, Where do you want us to go and prepare that you may eat the Passover? And he sent out two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the city, and a man will meet you carrying a pitcher of water. Follow him. Wherever he goes in, say to the master of the house, The teacher says, Where is the guest room in which I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room furnished and prepared. There make ready for us. So his disciples went out and came into the city and found it just as he had said to them, and they prepared the Passover. In the evening he came with the twelve. Now as they sat and ate, Jesus said, Assuredly I say to you, one of you who eats with me will betray me. And they began to be sorrowful and to say to him, one by one, is it I? And another said, is it I? And he answered and said to them, it is one of the twelve who dips with me in the dish. The Son of Man indeed goes just as it is written of him. But woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been good for that man if he had never been born. And here our text at verse 22. And as they were eating, Jesus took bread, blessed and broke it and gave it to them and said, Take, eat, this is my body. And he took the cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, 
And they all drank from it. And He said to them, This is My blood of the new covenant which is shed for many. Assuredly, I say to you, I will no longer drink of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Then Jesus said to them, All of you will be made to stumble because of Me this night. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. But after I have been raised, I will go forth, I will go before you to Galilee. Peter said to him, Even if all are made to stumble, yet I will not be. Jesus said to him, Assuredly, I say to you that today, even this night, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. But he spoke more vehemently. If I have to die with you, I will not deny you. And they all said, Likewise. Let's pray together. Father, we are thankful to come to Your Word, the source of truth, the source of life for all Your people. Bless it to us now, Lord, by your, the power of Your Spirit. For we ask it in Christ's blessed name. Amen. Brothers and sisters in our Lord Jesus Christ, this is my last communion as your pastor. Um, it's hard to believe we're at this point, but the point here this morning is not me. It is about what our Lord has done for us. And uh, so I want to begin this morning with a question. Why don't we celebrate the Passover just like Jesus did with His disciples? Why don't we have a meal together with roasted lamb, with bitter herbs, and unleavened bread? And to go along with it, are, are we missing something by not doing this? Well, the answer is actually no, we're not. We're not missing anything because what we have now is the reality of the Passover feast uh, of our Lord that we find in our Lord Jesus Christ. He is the reality. He is our Passover Lamb. And so we don't need to go back to the shadows of the Old Testament when we have the reality that is ours in Christ. We don't need to cling to the type when we have what's called the anti-type. The anti-type is the fulfillment of the type. So we don't cling to the Old Testament types when we have the fulfillment in our Lord Jesus. But you see, Christ has given us something that we can cling to until He comes in all of His glory to bring in the fullness of the Kingdom of God. He has given us His Supper as a sign and seal of His death. And so we can say that we don't really need to celebrate the Passover because we have something that's far greater. That is the Lord's Supper. Jesus Christ has given this ordinance to us and He's given it to us for our benefit. He commands that we partake of it together. If you are a believer in Christ, if you're walking in communion with Jesus, if, if you've made a public profession of faith and you've been baptized, you're a member in good standing, then you need to do this. You need to partake of the Lord's Supper. In fact, you're, you're commanded to do so by your Lord, to partake of His Supper. Which, of course, means not to do this would be disobedience. It would be sin. And yet, and yet we should realize that the sign and seal of the Lord's Supper is both a continuation and a discontinuation of the Passover. And we see the continuation right here in our text as Jesus institutes the Lord's Supper during the Passover celebration. So the Lord's Supper, in a sense, kind of grows out of the Passover. 
that the basis for the New Testament sacrament of the Lord's Supper is found in the Old Testament sacrament of the Passover. And so these things are connected together. As Paul says in 1 Corinthians 5-7, Christ is our Passover. But it's more than just a continuation. It's actually a further revelation of who Jesus is and what He has come to do for us as His people. And so in a sense, there's actually kind of a, a discontinuation here because there's something new here as well for us. It doesn't mean this is something completely different. Rather, it means that this is something that finds a, a fuller expression in the person and in the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, of course, it is also important for us to remember that we are supposed to examine ourselves as we come to the table. We're not to approach this sacrament in a casual manner. It's not some empty ritual that we partake of. It's a means of grace. And our hearts are to be right before God and before man if we are to partake of the means of grace as we should. Now, that doesn't mean that we should be perfect. We can't be perfect before we can come. But the attitude of our hearts, it needs to be one of humility. It needs to be one of submission as we partake of this sign and seal that shows us very clearly that Jesus Christ is the only answer for our condition, for our sins. And we must put our faith and our trust in Him and in Him alone to save us from our sins because there is no other help for us. Now, this means that this sacrament doesn't work apart from faith in Christ. This is not a magic pill that turns saints into sin- or sinners into saints. It's a visible sign given to us to show us what? That Christ has died for our sins. It's a spiritual seal that, that really impresses upon our very soul that His sacrifice is sufficient for us. That's what we learn here. And so my theme to this morning will be very simply that Jesus Christ institutes the ordinance of His Supper. Okay, we're going to look at the body of our Lord in verse 22, the blood of our Lord in verses 23 and 24, and then the bond of our Lord of the promise that He makes to us in verse 25. So the first thing we see in the text is that Jesus uses this symbol of the bread to represent His body, which was going to be broken for His people. And I'm using the term symbol as a synonym for sign. And what that means is that the Lord's Supper is not just a memorial. It is a memorial. It is a remembering. But it's more than that, as we're going to see here. The bread is the visible sign of the body of Jesus Christ. Let me read verse 22 again. And as they were eating, Jesus took bread, blessed and broke it, and gave it to them and said, Take, eat, this is my body. So Jesus and His disciples, they... They've come together. They're eating the Passover meal together as they're reclining all around the table eating there. Jesus takes this bread and He blesses it. And the word that's used for bless means to give thanks for. The sign of the Lord's body in the bread is to be blessed by prayer. Which is why we pray before we receive and partake of the Lord's Supper. We're to give thanks for this sign. Because it points us to the body of Christ. But you'll notice something else. There's something else here that Jesus does that's very significant. We're told Jesus broke the bread. And and the word that is used here in the text for broke means to break into two or more parts. And this is what I thought was interesting. It's a word that's used exclusively in the New Testament for the breaking of bread. 
It's actually the same word that's used when Jesus fed the 5,000. After He blessed the bread, He broke it and gave it to His disciples. And remember, they passed it out to the crowd. It's, it's actually the same word that's used when the two disciples who had been walking on the road to Emmaus after the resurrection, when they finally and suddenly recognized that they were talking to Jesus. When was it? When He broke the bread with them. So here Jesus takes the bread, He blesses it, He breaks it, and He gives it to His disciples. Each of them receive a piece of the bread. And then Jesus says, Take, eat. This is My body. So Jesus is saying here that the, the bread is His body. Now I can tell you that during the Reformation, these words kept the various sides of the Protestants from actually joining together in a common cause against the Roman church. Luther held that these words must be interpreted literally. Christ's body must be in the bread somehow or some way, though he would not go as far as transubstantiation. And so he used the words in, with, and under. Zwingli held that these words must be interpreted symbolically. The body of Christ was not in the bread at all. It's merely a symbol. It's a representation of the body. And this became that one area that kept Zwingli and Luther from agreeing. Uh, But later on, not much later, uh, Calvin taught that these words were to be interpreted spiritually. The body of Christ is in the bread, is to be partaken of here, is to be partaken of spiritually by faith through the Spirit. And so the argument that it was made, particularly at that time, uh, against any literal interpretation that this is the body of Christ is that Christ's body is in heaven at the right hand of God. It's not here on earth. And even at the the time of this institution of the Lord's Supper, the body of Christ was not in the bread because Christ was blessing the bread. The body of Christ was right there blessing the bread and breaking it for them. And so Jesus is saying here to us that this bread is a sign, it's a symbol of His body that very soon, before the day is over, because you remember the Jewish day begins at the evening, Before the day is over, His body is going to be broken for the sake of His people. And and that's the same teaching that we get from our standards from the Westminster Shorter Catechism. Question and answer 96. What is the Lord's Supper? The Lord's Supper is a sacrament wherein by giving and receiving bread and wine, according to Christ's appointment, His death is showed forth. And the worthy receivers are, not after a corporal and carnal manner, but by faith made partakers of His body and blood with all His benefits to their spiritual nourishment and growth in grace. And so the Lord's Supper is for our spiritual nourishment in the faith. And yet, what does does the broken bread show us? It's, It's pointing us to the fact that the body of Christ is going to be broken. And yet, we should also see here, who breaks the bread? Christ Himself. That Christ is going to offer up His life on the cross for the sins of His people. Jesus is going to lay down His life. No one takes it from Him. And so what is the significance that the bread is broken? What does that mean? It speaks of punishment. It speaks of suffering. But ultimately, it speaks of death. Now, I'm sure you remember that the bones of Christ were not broken. Uh, Just like the Passover lamb, not one of His bones were broken. 
And as the description of the crucifixion that was written a thousand years before uh, the actual event occurred in Psalm 22 says, For dogs have surrounded me, the congregation of the wicked have enclosed me, they pierce my hands and feet, I can count all my bones. They look and stare at me. They divide my garments among them and my clothing. They, for my clothing, they cast lots. All these things were written down a thousand years before they happened. Now, you, you know that the leg bones of those two thieves that were crucified with Jesus, they were broken to hasten their deaths, but not Christ. Because by the time they came to Him, He was already dead. So His bones were not broken, but His body was. Christ suffers on the cross. And we should realize it goes far greater than just physical suffering. Yes, Christ will suffer the wrath of man. He's scourged. He's beaten. He's nailed to a cross. He's crucified. But you see, the whole point of this, all that Jesus is saying is here, is that He is going to suffer more than that. He is going to suffer the wrath of God in our place. He is our propitiation. That is, He will satisfy the justice of God against our sins. He will take our sins and our punishment upon Himself. And and God the Father will pour out His wrath upon His beloved Son. And Christ will satisfy the wrath of God. In other words, His body will be broken for us. Now, people of God, the, the body of our Lord Jesus was broken for the complete remission of all our sins. It's you and I who are the sinners. It's you and I who have broken the law of God. We've we've sinned against our God. We have earned eternal wrath for our sin. And each and every one of us deserve to go to hell. But you see, the wonder of the Gospel is that the punishment that you and I deserve, it was poured out upon our Savior Jesus Christ. And as we gather around the table of our Lord this morning to partake of this sacrament, we have before us the visible sign and seal that's been given to us by the Lord Jesus. It shows us clearly that He has done just that. He has satisfied the wrath of God in our place. He is our substitute. He's our surety. He's our guarantee. And when we come to this table, we're not putting our faith in ourselves that we're good or that we're righteous. We're putting our faith in our faithful Savior who gave Himself for us. And when we do, we will will not be disappointed. Because you see, Jesus is able to save to the uttermost those sinners who come to Him in faith, believing that His death has won for them the salvation that they could not win for themselves. As the prophet says in Isaiah 53, verses 4 and 5, again, this was written 700 years before Christ died on the cross. Surely He has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed Him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. And He was. But He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was upon Him. And by His stripes we are healed. Beloved, know this. The body of Christ was broken for you. But that's not all that Jesus has to say at this time. Jesus not only takes bread and blesses it and breaks it and gives it to all of His disciples, telling them that this is His body, but He also takes the cup of wine. Again, He gives thanks for it and He passes it around to all of His disciples. They drink Uh, the wine from a common cup. 
But then Jesus says something that's just as startling as what He said about the bread. Listen to what He says in verse 24. And He said to them, This is My body of the new covenant which is shed for many. So again, Jesus is saying that the wine in the cup is His blood. Doesn't mean that he, he bled himself and gave them his own blood to drink. He, he's saying that the cup of wine symbolizes, is a sign of his very own blood, which was at that moment coursing through his own veins. But very soon, that blood was going to be shed for the sins of his people. But you'll notice there's actually a, another modifier uh, of the word blood there. Not only does Jesus call it my blood. But it's also my blood of the new covenant. And this is a phrase that's really pregnant with meaning and with promise for us. This phrase points us back to the words of the prophet Jeremiah in Jeremiah 31. I want you to listen to those verses of promise in verses 31 and 34. Jeremiah 31, beginning at 31. Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not according to the covenant I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant which they broke, though I was a husband to them, says the Lord. But this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they shall be my people. No more shall every man teach his neighbor and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they all shall know Me. From the least of them to the greatest of them, says the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity and their sin I will remember no more. So what Jesus is saying at this point is that His blood that's about to be shed is the means of the new covenant. Without the blood of Christ, there is no new covenant. And this theme is picked up by the writer of the book of Hebrews who says in uh, Hebrews 9.15, And for this reason He is the mediator of the new covenant. How? By means of the death. For the redemption of the transgressions under the first covenant that those who are called may receive the promise of the eternal inheritance. So Christ by His death makes a new covenant. The new covenant. And it's not a different covenant. It's really just the, the fullness. It's the, the consummation of the covenant of redemption that God had already promised His people in the Old Testament. And Christ by His death makes the new covenant a reality. And yet Christ has one more thing to say about His blood. He says that His blood is shed for many. Not shed for all without exception. Not shed for every single person who ever lived. It's shed for the elect. That is, it's shed for all without distinction. For the people of every tribe and tongue and nation whom God has chosen. And the other thing we should not forget here is, is the victory of our God in this word many. That the blood of Christ is not shed for just a few, but for many. Remember, God promised Abraham that his descendants would be like the stars of the heavens and the sand of the seashore. And so we see that come to fulfillment in the, in the book of Revelation of that multitude around the throne of God. Remember that no one can number. And these are the true sons of Abraham. Those who hear and believe the Gospel just like Abraham are the true sons of Abraham. Not those who were born according to the flesh, but those who are born from above by the Spirit of God. So, so what is the significance of the blood of Christ? 
If his body being broken speaks of suffering and punishment and ultimately leading to death, what does the blood of Christ refer to here? Well, it speaks of the sacrifice of Christ as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. It speaks of the atonement of Christ which gives us peace with God. It speaks of the forgiveness of sin which only comes through the shed blood of Christ because why? Because without the shedding of blood there can be no remission of sin. But then, just like the broken bread, ultimately it speaks clearly of the death of Christ for sinners. You know, the sacrifices of blood in the Old Testament always brought about the death of the sacrificial animal. And Christ pours out His life blood as the perfect sacrifice for the sins of His people. He is faithful even unto death. The law required the death of the transgressor. The wages of sin is death. So either Christ dies or you die. Someone has to pay the ultimate penalty for your sin. And here we see that Christ willingly lays down His life for the sake of His people. I, I think this makes foolish those. Maybe you hear about this sometimes at Easter. People go ahead and go through a mock crucifixion, right? Uh, they're, they're crucified on a cross or at least tied to a cross, maybe for a few minutes, maybe for a few hours, as if they really think they can go through the same thing as Christ went through. But that's ridiculous. First of all, crucifixion is unto death. Christ went to the cross to die, to lay down His life, to shed His own blood as a sin offering. But again, even the, the physical sufferings of Christ don't even begin to tell of all of His suffering for us that He went through on the cross for us. I think we get a hint of it in 2 Corinthians 5.21 when it says that He became sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. The, the Son became sin. How can that be? How can the perfect, holy Son of God become sin? Because it was your sin and my sin that was imputed to Him, that was laid upon Him. And the Father turned His back upon His only begotten Son and poured out His holy wrath upon Jesus. And we don't know what that's like. I think the Apostles' Creed begins to approach that idea when it says, He descended into hell. How can you possibly describe what Christ went through? The, the sinless, perfect, holy Lamb of God without blemish suffered the anguish of a soul that has been forsaken and cut off from God. So much so that He cries out, My God, my God, why have You forsaken me? And we will never fully understand that price that Christ paid for our redemption. You want to know why? Because it was a terrible price. A terrible price indeed that we could not pay. Now, people of God, it's important for us to get a clear understanding of what Christ has done for us. Because it gives us the right attitude. Not only when we celebrate the Lord's Supper, but it gives us the right attitude every day of our life. Understanding what Christ has done for us will, first of all, produce humility in our hearts. The bread and the wine that, that we share here remind us of just how awful, how terrible, how rotten sin really is. It shows us how much God utterly hates 
and despises sin and wickedness. Think about it. If, if nothing but the broken body and the shed blood of the beloved Son will avail to save you and me from our sin, then how great must our sin be? How horrible must our sin be? You see, you see there's no place here to, for us to boast in ourselves. None at all. You and I have nothing to boast in. All we can boast in, all we can glory in is what the Savior has done for us. We have to empty ourselves of ourselves. And cling only to the Savior. Second, a clear understanding of what Christ has done for us will produce hopefulness in us as well. Hopefulness about our souls. You and I, we have hope because the bread and the wine remind us that though our sins be great, an even greater price has been paid for our redemption. There is no balance due at the time of closing. There's, there's nothing left here to be paid off. Christ has paid the debt that we owe for our sin and He has paid it in full. Though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though our sins be great, and they are, the sacrifice for our sins is greater still. And that gives us hope. A certain hope. And then third, beloved, a clear understanding of the work of Christ for us in His death upon the cross will produce in us gratitude and thankfulness. Because you see, the bread and the wine, they remind us how great is our debt to our Lord Jesus for all of His benefits to us. That if we've been cleansed by the blood of the Lamb, and we know that in our hearts, there's no way we can live for ourselves. We have to live for Jesus. As those who have been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb, how, how can we do anything less for the One whose body was broken, whose blood was shed for us? To know what Christ has done in saving you from your sins, that will produce in you a desire to serve Him, to love Him, to obey Him, to offer yourself as a living sacrifice to the One who loved you and gave Himself for you. Remember what Jesus said to the Pharisee. He who has been forgiven much will love much. Now the last thing we see in the last verse of our text, verse 25, is the promise, uh, the bond here of our Lord Jesus. He makes a bond with us, a promise. And what, and what does He promise? What does He say is going to happen in the future here? And, and there are two things that Jesus promises here. One, one's actually very near and the other one's really further along, further down in the future. Verse 25, Assuredly I say to you, I will no longer drink of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. The first promise really speaks of the nearness of the death of Christ. I will no longer drink of the fruit of the vine. You see, Jesus is going to lay down His life very soon. He's going to be betrayed by Jesus. He's going to be handed over to the Sanhedrin where this kangaroo court will condemn Him to death. He will be sentenced to die on the cross. And all this is going to happen within the next 12 hours. And yet you remember, what did Jesus say? He longed for this time together with His disciples. He longed to celebrate 
His supper with them, even though He knew what was going to happen afterwards. He knew He was going to suffer. He knew He was going to die. And He entered into it willingly for you. But also, Jesus says that this time of not drinking from the fruit of the vine, it will not last forever. Because there is coming a time when He will once again sit down with all of His disciples and feast and drink and rejoice with them. I will no longer drink of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. So the the promise of Christ is not only that He's going to go to the cross to die, that He's going to make a reality of all that the disciples have just shared in in the institution of the Lord's Supper and His broken body and His shed blood. That's all going to become a reality here with His death. But He is also promising here that He's coming again in great power and glory to bring in the fullness of the kingdom of God. There is coming a day when faith will be sight. There is coming a day when His glory will be seen by all. There is coming a day when the whole world will bow before Him. And what a great day that will be for the people of God. For all those for whom the body of Christ was broken and the blood of Christ was shed. And that's why you and I, that's why we continue to celebrate the death of our Lord at His supper. Because we know that one day, He will come again in great power and glory to judge the living and the dead. And on that day, we will drink it new with Him in the kingdom of God at the marriage supper of the Lamb. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death till He comes. Now, people of God, the Passover feast and the Passover lamb point us to Christ who is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The Lord's Supper that we're about to partake of together points us to the death of Christ for the sake of sinners. But you see, these two things together, they also point us to something else. They point us to the wedding supper of the Lamb that all the people of God from the beginning of time to the end of time will celebrate together with our Savior and Lord. One day, there is going to be a celebration like nothing you can imagine. One day we will see the One whose body was broken and whose blood was shed so that we might share in His glory, so that we might share in His riches, so that we might share in His mercy and His grace and do so forever. You see, one day we're going to sit with Him at the wedding supper of the Lamb. Are you ready for that great and terrible day of the Lord? Are you ready for Him to come in all of His power and glory? Are you ready to stand in His holy presence to give an account of your life? Because that day is coming. Beloved, if the things which the Lord's table speaks of here, if those things are not a reality in your life, then let me assure you, you're not ready to meet the Lord. If if these things are not true for you, then you're not ready to die. As you see the picture of Christ this morning in the text and in the elements that we're about to partake of, a picture here of the the broken Savior, a picture of a bloody Savior, one who died for your sins, if you are not moved to sorrow for your sins, if you're not willing to be reconciled to God, if you're not willing to cease your rebellion against the King of Heaven, then what are you doing? You're, You're condemning yourself to the everlasting fires of hell. 
If you are so opposed to God that you can feel no sorrow for your sin, that in itself is reason enough for God to condemn you. The harder it is for you to repent, the more you refuse Him and His gracious offer of the Gospel, the more wicked you are. And the Bible says the greater will be your condemnation. We're warned in Hebrews 2.3, how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? That's the warning. But remember the promise. The promise of the good news of the Gospel of Christ. That though your sins are very great, your Savior is greater still. Remember His promise that all who come to Him, He says He will in no wise cast out. Therefore, let us come to Him whose body was broken and whose blood was shed so that you and I might have peace and joy and eternal life with Him forever. And all God's people said, Amen.